Content warning. This conversation includes discussions of residential schools, colonial, and state violence. Ani, Riley Esnow, Nindijnikaz. I'm Riley Esnow, and you're listening to Red Surgeon. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Red Surgeons podcast series. I'm your host, Riley Yesno, an Anishinaabe scholar and writer from Yamatong First Nation who grew up on the coast of Gichigamig in a city called Thunder Bay. I am also a firm believer in the power of Indigenous people everywhere to transform our communities, nations, and worlds. This is what Red Surgeons is about, Indigenous resurgence using this space to explore topics related to Indigenous people rising, doing the everyday work of resisting colonialism and actively building liberated futures for everyone outside of the colonial state. I came into these conversations around liberation as a young teenager, and they completely transformed my world. Growing up in Northern Ontario, I was always very intimately aware of colonialism's impact. I am the granddaughter of two residential school survivors, spent the early years of my life growing up in the res and in a city that has become infamous in recent years for being sort of the embodiment of racism in Canada. Thunder Bay is the repeated homicide and hate crime capital of Canada, where a majority of those violences are perpetrated against Indigenous people. I remember totally buying into this idea that one day I would run for office, I would get elected, and I would help make change in my community, and that that would be like a huge success story. I had been really sold on this idea that it was above everything through institutions like elected politics and policymaking, that change was made, that that's where it happened. I believed it you know, so much so that at 16, 17, I took up a role as a youth advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I was like, this is it. I'll tell him about my life, about my community's experiences, my experiences as an Indigenous person in the North, and we can really start to make changes. Really quickly, though, I realized that elected politics was not the change-making vehicle that I was told it was. I would leave hours-long meetings feeling so empty, like we didn't do anything that I wasn't listened to. High-level public officials would just watch as I and other young people had racist justifications for poor policymaking thrown at us. I left events crying, and they pulled us into rooms trying to pit us against each other. It really crushed something in me. And so I left. And I asked not to be contacted again. And people still look at me in shock when I tell them that. Or they'll come up to me not knowing and say that they think that being in that space was the most impressive thing I've ever done. I tell you that experience because it forms the basis of motivation for this show. It taught me a lot about how we try to push these colonial visions of success and change onto young people about 
what Indigenous people have to sacrifice and put up with in order to just exist in those spaces for little to nothing back. And in the end, it ended up being the best thing I ever did. Because when I quit, I started to look for other ways of change making. That is when I fully began stepping into community. Elders, young people from across nations, mentors, they all embraced me. They were generous and loving, and they taught me years of organizing strategies and lessons that I hadn't known. They showed me what futures beyond settler colonialism could look like and how we can get there, what it takes. I realized at that time I was inheriting centuries of brilliance and contestation. And rather than it feeling like it sucked the life out of me, like colonial politics did, it brought me life. And it gave me a lifelong journey of building onto that inheritance. This podcast is meant to share some of that which has been shared with me and to go deeper into the places I still want and need to explore. And we can do it together. To start, let's talk about Land Back. Here's a quick timeline. The slogan Land Back first came onto the scene in 2018 from a meme page on Instagram run by a Blackfoot man named Arnell Tailfeathers. Quickly after this, you saw Land Back pop up in community conversations and cultural creations. Songs titled Land Back were released. Artists made merchandise with the phrase. In many cases, parts of the proceeds from these creations were going back to Indigenous land and water defenders. Land Back, also around this time, started to be used in studies of Indigenous self-determination. It kept popping up in academia. The Yellowhead Institute notably released their Land Back report in 2019. And then after this, direct action and defense movements started to explicitly use Land Back in the name of their resistances. Haudenosaunee folks protested corporate expansions of their territories, which they called 1492 Land Back Lane. The Indian Collective released the Land Back Manifesto amidst protests of the ongoing theft and exploitation of Mount Rushmore. In under four years, Land Back has taken hold in the minds, the hearts, and the fights of Indigenous people everywhere. But what exactly is Land Back? What does it look like? How did it become so salient? To put it super simply, the working definition I use of Land Back is any action that centers placing jurisdiction, authority, and resources back into the hands of Indigenous people, especially those points that have been harmed or attacked by colonization efforts. In practice, this can look like many things. Reoccupation. Indigenous people living out their sovereignty on their lands without permission from the colonial state. This looks like exercising traditional governance, practicing Indigenous legal orders, kinship systems, securing and maintaining their own ways of food. This also includes protecting their lands and their people in the ways that they see fit. Land back can be non-Indigenous people or institutions returning deeds to land or giving resources made off of lands back to Indigenous people. There are sometimes systems set up for this. They're called land trusts, where people make monthly donations to Indigenous people that are put in these trusts so that future generations can have the resources they need to be able to continue living and thriving on their homelands. Another example is permitting protocols, Indigenous people explicitly laying out the rules on their territories that are to be respected by anybody who enters them. 
This approach is very different than the approach to Indigenous affairs we have seen spearheaded by the state. In Canada, since the 70s, but especially since around 2008, reconciliation has been the language used to describe goals for future relationships. In 2008, then-PM Stephen Harper apologized for the role the Canadian government played in the residential school system. Though he notably excluded Newfoundland and Labrador from this apology, Indigenous people there wouldn't receive one until 2017. The 2008 apology, though, kicked off the start of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the process that is often considered the keystone of Canada's reconciliation approach. The commission released its final report in 2015 after hearing from over 6,500 witnesses and survivors of the residential school system. Attached to its final report were 94 calls to action meant to provide a baseline Canada was to meet to address the ongoing disparities that prevent Indigenous people from having the necessary conditions to thrive. Though critical, the actions outlined in the TRC are actually pretty basic and what I mean by that is that they are basically expectations of every citizen. Fund us the same that you fund others. Eliminate bias in the way that we are treated in your institutions. They are important things, but they are also the bare minimum. Canada has been really terrible at meeting that bare minimum. As of this recording, only 11 of the 94 calls to action have been completed at a rate of just over one per year. This slow pace of reconciliation has been matched by state violence at the same time. Since the release of the TRC, Indigenous people all across what is currently called Canada have again and again had to resist intrusions on their land from businesses, from the RCMP, often at the barrel of a gun. In 2020, on the west coast of currently called Canada, Wet'suwet'en land defenders protested the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline into their unceded and unsurrendered territories. This was the straw that I think broke the camel's back. There, Indigenous people proclaimed that reconciliation was dead. For many years, Indigenous people had been critical of the way that reconciliation was taking shape. Its pace, it was more about symbolic gestures than it was about material actions. And all of the things that we were supposed to expect were supposed to trickle down from the state and somehow make their hands into Indigenous people rather than giving power, resources and authority directly to Indigenous people themselves. So when the RCMP invaded Wet'suwet'en territory in 2020 and proclaimed that reconciliation was dead, Indigenous youth, especially everywhere, grabbed onto this. Importantly to note, just as reconciliation was pronounced dead here, land back was on the rise. It couldn't be co-opted in the same way. It came from Indigenous people and was made accessible through the spread of the internet as opposed to state-sanctioned processes. It offered a promising and immediate alternative to the failed politics of the day. Land back as a phrase is new, but it is built off of this long history of contestation. Even when or if there are other rallying calls, that spirit that informs land back remains. I want to talk about that really quick. A lot of people think that that spirit that spirit that informs land back is one of anger or resentment that burns a fire. That's part of it. But I think deeper than that, it is a spirit of love. 
as articulated especially by Black feminist thinkers like Bell Hooks, it is our love for our communities, for our ancestors, for future generations that makes us so intolerant of injustice in the first place. That spirit is not going anywhere. So this is my very quick overview and pitch of Land Back to you. But Land Back is not the whole story of liberation. As Nehia poet and author Erica Violet Lee once said on a panel with me, even if we get the land back tomorrow, there is still work to do. I am interested in that work. I'm interested in the way that indigenous people are doing that work between and within other communities, building solidarities with indigenous people across borders, confronting anti-blackness, reclaiming understandings of gender and queerness, giving power to youth that they are so often denied under colonial systems. These are just some of the things that I hope we will have the chance to dig deeper into in the following episodes with brilliant thinkers and leaders in their community. I hope you'll be able to listen and join me. Miigwech. I also want to give a big shout out and thank you to the Indigenous Politics Collaboratory and the folks at Red Media for helping me make this first episode happen.